0: Hello, and welcome to Regrets, I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told by Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Today, I'm joined by a dear friend uh, and writer and artist, and for my money, one of the greatest British actors of recent times, uh, Edward Pefferbridge. Edward, welcome. Well. After that, what can I say? Well, I just thought it it was long overdue, I think. First of all, can I say it's lovely to see you and also lovely to see you in your extraordinary house with all your artwork behind you. Are you painting during lockdown? Well, because I'm now,
1: you know, um, um, in Billy out of the acting (laughs) profession, I, (laughs) I spend my time drawing and painting mostly and writing poetry you will be I meant to write a limerick a, a limerick I thought you'd accept a limerick of course and, of course, uh, lot of and, and, and I got over bed and I was going to think I'll do a limerick about zoom and it rhymes with everything doom and, everything. and uh, anyway I haven't, <laughs> done, haven't done that which is a great pity
0: but well, we could always add that in at a later date um, I, I wonder if we could begin by going back to Bradford, where I know you were born in West Bowling, I believe it, it was. I seem to remember from our time together.
1: Well, I've got a picture of myself that I was looking at this morning and joking about with my daughter. It's a picture of me at about the age of... And I remember the photograph being taken because it was... And I'm, I must be two if, if I'm a day. And I'm sitting on a step, looking like one of Charlie Chaplin's waifs. (laughs) And with a very, very morose look on my face. And I remember it absolutely clearly. They say you can't remember anything until you're three. But I remember that. So that's my... and, um, and, And the other thing I remember, if you want to, I'll just give you one more. Picture yes, of, of course. Of boy yeah. and Bradford yeah. pulling a Noah's Ark, a little wooden Noah's Ark with very unsatisfactory flat figures that stacked, you know, sort of two-dimensional thing, uh, over the nicks in the on the pavement in front of our back-to-back house. And thinking, I don't think I used the phrase in my, but the, I distinctly remember feeling there must be more to life than this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I suppose my next question is was there a moment in your childhood where you kind of got the showbiz bug so to speak can you identify a moment when you thought wow what is this theatre thing
1: absolutely and uh, controvertibly there is my parents took me when I was seven to see my first pantomime at the Alhambra in Bradford, or the Alhambra as we called it. And <laughs> it, and it was a great Norman Evans, who seemed to me to be wonderful. Fairy dust and carbolic mixed, you know.
0: And <laughs>
1: and um, Kirby's, Kirby's flying ballad. I've got a picture on the wall behind me which is kind of inspired by it, which I drew the other day. So uh, anyway, um, Uh, We were sitting right behind the limelight man, uh, who had two (laughs) big limes and all the sliding of the different colored things. That was that we were behind him on the front row of second row or something of the gods. And so we were right at the the sort of lighting engineering heart of the pantomime because we could see whether <laughs> he, which, which colour he was going to put in next, and whether it was a demon or the fairy. And, uh, <laughs> and it was a wonderful sh- noise when he did it, you know, and the trimming of the wicks and all that kind of. And, uh, and of course, down there, far down there, it, well, it was the best view of Bradford I had ever had, you know. I mean, <laughs> if Bradford can look like this. And um, I decided then, I've got to be down there. And in fact, I got a job quite early on, which toured to the Alhambra, and I played a a leading part in the very early 60s and and then paired on that very stage. And of course, I'd had two friends who had got backstage during the pantomime when I was young, very, very young indeed. One had a, a sort of high up sort of person in management because he was in the A-stream at the grammar school, but I was in the C-C-stream. And, uh, and, uh, but another friend of mine <laughs> went, to a, went to a secondary modern. His mother cleaned at the Lambra, so he got behind as well. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 they, they spanned the social possibilities and got backstage, and I didn't. However, I walked through the stage door and got a key to a dressing room eventually. didn't I? It would have meant so much to me when I was a kid.
0: I'm interested when you talked about the Alhambra and you, you said it in your Bradford accent, you obviously lost or made a decision or was persuaded to, to, to lose the accent. Did you ever regret losing your Bradford accent?
1: Uh, no, I don't, because I've still got it. <laughs> um, I had a young actor on the radio talking the other day Radio 4, about how actors used to pretend they came you know, you had to, You had to. I believed, that in order to get a job as an actor, you had to be able to come through French windows convincing people that you could play tennis <laughs> and had a private income and, and went to public school. And um, <laughs> nowadays, he says, this guy, he said the other day, that, that the profession is full of people like that or all pretending they come from the lower reaches of society. <laughs> so that's been the reversal in my time. My first radio was a wonderful script by Bill Norton, who wrote... Oh, yes, Springfield Port Wine. All that, yes. And um, he wrote a wonderful thing called November Day about a young working man lad getting a, a job a day's work as a coal bagger. And... Uh, Suddenly, I was on Radio Three in the very early sixties, talking for the first time professionally in my own accent. You know, talking. Wow. Oh, it was bloody hard. I didn't think of it. <laughs> it makes me cry. Because you know, I wouldn't, if I used my own accent to myself, I wouldn't. But when I do it to other people, it makes me feel frightfully
0: sentimental. Um, and did your parents hear you in that play on the radio? Yes. And what what did they think?
1: I don't remember. <laughs> um, my father was a man of few words. And um, I, I, when I went to the Alhambra and the, um, the play that I did was, was Gene Kent, who was a famous film star. He thought I was made when I was working with Gene Kent. where well, she was yeah. having to take a tour of a, a, a Western... Yeah. A provincial <laughs> tour of a West End play because there was nothing else for him. Anyway, my father came to see it, and uh, he said, um, "Did the director tell you to do it like that?" And that was all. He, <laughs> that was all he said. And um, and he came. Ag- <laughs> he came again. Came round to see me. I, he said, uh, "I came again tonight. I went to sit in the gods. Yeah, I do like that chapel plays the old." old fella and he'd come to see him so I didn't I wasn't um, you know I didn't have the I had to play the kind of part in rep and elsewhere where you know um, you would have had as a child uh, a stage child um, a corner of the what would it be called the drawing room where you did your plays and you had a dressing up box with rather fabulous stuff in it and you would do bits for distinguished visitors you know i didn't do any of that i did a i had a little cardboard thing and a clothes horse in the passage and uh used to get people to you know kids to come off the street and <laughs> my my little shows and i i've had the odd postcard from them Lesser January, years saying do you remember your little shows in the passage and of course it's wonderful it's wonderful <laughs> that you ever remembered them
0: well that, that is that is a really brilliant glimpse into your childhood and early beginnings in Bradford you obviously uh, when you started as a professional actor you did a lot of I presume weekly rep and around the country most places oh yes uh, and what at what point did you actually Sort of fetch find yourself in London for the first time.
1: Well, I think yes, well, my first job was at Regent's Park Open Air <laughs> Theatre. Uh, yes. where in those days it was just a kind of field, uh, there, there wasn't an amphitheatre, <laughs> and there was a sort of crude mic system, and and the wind in the trees was very dodgy. And, um, <laughs> in fact, I met the Queen as a result of having been a veteran there at one stage. And I said to her, "Uh, oh, your majesty, um, we were very fortunate because we didn't have any planes passing. And a plane coming over, usually quite low, takes the time of a Shakespearean soliloquy. And I've seen various soliloquies completely ruined by one plane. I said, but perhaps that was your influence, ma'am. And he said, it's very kind of you to say so, but it doesn't seem to make any difference at Windsor.
0: And <laughs> 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 uh, uh, what was that first? Uh, what did you The first play the I
1: time? did, I, I did two plays, uh, and it was something of a renaissance because it had been run by the old Vic veteran Robert Atkins, who would say things like, um, What do you mean? When uh, Ophelia, or not, not Ophelia, um, whoever it was, the juvenile he said, "This doesn't fit, Robert. Is it strange? It always does." We were the first um, new management taking over, mm-hmm. and David William was a rather talented director, and we did *Midsummer Night's Dream*, in which I played Demetrius, the least effective of the lovers, and. Um, humane in Love's Labour's Lost, and we got the most sparkling reviews, even the lovers got sparkling reviews, and I never think uh, that the lovers are the best bit of Midsummer Night's Dream. So that was a lovely launch into, into London.
0: Obviously, you've worked with, uh, worked with some extraordinary people over the years, but how did you come to the attention of uh, Lawrence Olivier?
1: Um, I didn't come to the attention of <laughs> Lawrence Olivier, really. Uh, what happened was, I was in a show that transferred to the West End from The Mermaid, and I saw on the notice board, when I was coming to the end of this very short, curtailed run into the West End, um, the Royal Court studio advertising for actors to come and do classes for a nominal fee. I thought, the Royal Court, I must do that. So I got to know, I was taught by Bill Gaskell and um, Chagrin, who taught mime, I love that, um, Gat and so on. And um, suddenly um, Bill said, um, we're auditioning for the first new intake of actors. They'd started the year before the National in 63 and the 64 they were going to take and then you intake and he said, You can come for an audition. What will you do? And I said, Well, I, I think I'll do Richard the second. He said, Oh, don't do that. I, <laughs> I said, Yeah, but I'm doing rookery nook as well. So which we oh, is wonderful always always Fast. You're very late and very late. If you can't come here at all, don't come at the proper time. I don't understand your meaning. Luckily for you. Anyway, uh, I, I did that piece of duologue, uh, and Richard II. And, um, and the audition was at Lawrence and Libby sitting in a part of a long line in front of me, I mean, so that when I got laughs for the fast bit, I had to wait for them. I mean, there was amazing. I mean, there was an impressive audience.
0: But it's but it's inter it's interesting. I think you know for people listening of a, of a of a you know younger listeners or whatever. It's he he not only was he our most famous actor, but he was one of the most famous men in the land, wasn't he? I mean, he was. When I
1: when when I went to see his, um, it was awesome to being in a in a rehearsal room with him because I've seen the first one I was a tiny boy, in the film of Henry the Fifth. And although I didn't understand much about it, I was predisposed to approve of the film because it started in a theatre. And of course, anything to do with theatre, I thought was. Ace. I still remember the magical moment. I then look at it again because it never works when you go back to moments in film. But the camera goes into the tiring room and pans around at all these actors and suddenly go, <laughs> it's Olivia. Jim, I'm going to drag him as he working out his star entrance into the film by just being an actor quietly standing by the door waiting to go on to play Henry V. And he's very quiet, you hear the other guy or something. And then he just very softly clears his throat and then walks on and you walk on with him there the audience and it's such a cunning anyway we'd seen all this kind of thing and um suddenly there he was and he um he came up to me he was ill for a bit he 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 often did this strategy he goes goes ill for about a fortnight, and lets the other right actors get on with it, and then um, he comes in and does his thing. And um, when he came back, he was moving down left, and he showed me. He said, What's that say?" I said, "It says move down left to Petherbridge." Oh, thank you," he said. <laughs> went to Birmingham to kind of preview it really and um, I was standing literally six feet away from him during my most potent grave and reverend seniors my most approved and so on doing that big speech to the senate and it was his first night at Othello and he sort of somehow went into a slightly different gear. Slow, slightly, slightly slower, as if he was shedding every possible suggestion to himself and the audience of nerves. And it was like watching, you know how a Rolls-Royce, you're meant to be able to put a sixpence on the hood and start the engine and it won't fall. And it was like
0: that. The sixpence
1: would have balanced.
0: It was like... While we're on the subject, because in a sense, that kind of extraordinary period in British theatre history that you were a part of, we can't really not talk about the Sixties without touching on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. When you were first sent that script for the first time, you know, we know this play so well, it's a classic play now, but you presumably were given it to look at. What was your reaction on a first reading? Can you remember?
1: Absolutely. And I wasn't sent it. I was called in to see Lawrence Olivier wow. and given it personally by him. I mean, he's not only a consummate actor, he was a consummate politician. He'd done this thing of calling me in, especially to give me the script personally. But it was also at the end of the afternoon, and he had his hat and coat on, and the chauffeur purring in the car outside, <laughs> so he could see that I was an interim measure. And he said, marvellous park, marvellous play, Gillenstone, And that was all he said, Practically, uh, I read it on the bus back home to Peckham. And I was absolutely thrilled from the first moment. And although this does sound like a piece of self-aggrandizement, but if any part was destined to a grand issue, you know, that seemed to be it to me, because uh, it seemed to have so many attributes that I had been trying to work at. Um, I mean, it was comedians' crosstalk. There was a, an undertow of anxiety and drama and mystery. Uh, anybody who does the play without... You know, there's a story that Stoppard wanted to have Morecambe and Wise in it. But I don't believe that. I have never asked him. Uh, But um, they wouldn't have done the... There's this undertow of mystery and anxiety about their situation. And there are some very poetic speeches about autumn leaves and things.
0: Were you surprised by its success or not?
1: Oh, no, not at all. Um, I, I found out when we'd opened that there was a huge amount of doubt about the play. And Olivier was said he was astonished that it had the best reviews of a new play that he remembered. And wow. I, I think he, he was rather shocked. And I never had any doubt. We, in those days, we used to do one public dress rehearsal and on to the world or the country's press. So you know, uh, so all these business about teaching the lights and cutting bits and giving you a chance to break it in with your audience, you'd had a very willing full house of friends and then the public and all uh, that coin tossing and crosstalk, never off. Oh. But um, I was completely confident that the, that the thing was and. And uh, um, I, wor- I worshipped him and the play, ever since. And I was in it for three years in repertoire. Wow!
0: And the rest, the rest is history, as they say. And I, if I can, I'd like to jump forward uh, in time, but still with the National Theatre. in In the eighties, obviously, you've you very famously ran a company there with uh, Sir Ian McKellen. And my question is uh, is not connected to that that particular thing, but. You've often entertained me in the past. Uh, you've always made me laugh when you talk about the notion of uh, certain uh, people receiving awards um, uh, or honors, so to speak. Um, and I just wonder what you, w- whether <laughs> there's any regrets for you around any of that.
1: Well, I could do my riff about that, which I <laughs> I find it is a riff now because I I uh, Ron Pickup, who who was in the company, of course. Uh, at the National, in the Olivier days, played in Long Day's Journey with Olivier, uh, and, and was the best Rosalind I ever hope to see. I don't want to see As You Like It Again, having seen him and Jeremy Brett. Oh, my God. Anyway, he rang me up out of the blue. He's been a bit of a recluse and standoffish over the decades. But he rang me up, and uh, I said, I haven't dared look up to see you have a gong, uh, whether you have a gong or not. <laughs> Most of the actors we grew up with have gongs. And I said, I can count up to six women who I have played the husband or the lover to, who, ha- who are dames. And I have run out of counting MBEs. And that's just the women. And, um, uh, <laughs> and, and there is a monk. He played Alfred, one of the little boy player on the Road to El-Sino in... in the and um, various other parts, and then he left and became a monk. He's got an MBE, and my ex-wife has got the Queen's Medal for Services to Theatre in New Zealand. So what's this conspiracy to leave me as a commoner? <laughs> I don't give a damn, of course.
0: I know, but it's a very entertaining riff. Well, Edward... We're drawing to a a close. We I mentioned regrets a few times. One regret that I don't have was going to the audition for the musical The Fantastics. And I was persuaded to do so by my wife, because my wife was pregnant at the time with our second child. And I've never done any musical theatre. And uh, she said, you should go for the audition, you know, if you get this... It could be six months in the West End, it's good money. And of course, as we both know, it, it lasted much shorter than six months. But I have absolutely no regret because you were a big hero of mine. And then, of course, uh, out of the ashes of the Fantastics came the, uh, the, the phoenix that was uh, my perfect mind. And it is without a doubt one of the biggest joys of my, my life.
1: Why we were so lucky
0: was that
1: the two parts it was kind of leer and fool relation to any and we never had to discuss gags and things it all just happened instinctively and collaboratively and you know one has met competitive actors um in one's time and uh, rather, rather too many of them and um worrying about where the laugh comes the only wonderful, the, the, the wonderful thing about John Stride, who, who played Rosenblatt, was that the laughs used to occasionally migrate from one to the other. And he was absolutely scrupulous and true and didn't give a damn about that. Who, who, whereas Tom's told me that he went round to meet Rosenblatt Rosen, and Yellowstone in New York and he used to have to stand outside their dressing rooms and knock with both hands at each door at the same time. So as not <laughs> to be accused of any kind of favoritism. Can you imagine? You bring us up to date with Tom Stommer. I suddenly bumped into him, as it were, in the foyer of the National Theatre um, about two or three years ago. And he said, Edward, every time I meet you, I think, I see you. As a character that Chekhov would have written a part for. And of course, I was too slow to say, Well, why don't you write me a part?
0: <laughs> I, I, on the subject of parts, Edward, is there any part that you regret that you never played or got the chance to play?
1: Well, I don't regret now. I don't. Uh, I, you'd be amazed how I get my sucker from being suddenly finding I can do. Proper painting and it's so impressive. Uh, but um, because I nearly went to art school, I would have been uh, wearing gold army with, with David Hockney because he was from Brighton as well. But anyway, <laughs> um, might have been might have changed everything. Anyway, I was cast as Hamlet a couple of times, and both productions fell through for various reasons. And that's I regret not playing, Lear, but
0: it's. I,
1: well, regrets too strong a word. Now it was terrible at the time.
0: Yes, but also I think, and I know this this kind of um, what I'm about to say in some ways was part of the tension in my perfect mind, which I think worked wonderfully comedically, because I obviously always felt that you did a rather wonderful King Lear in my perfect mind. It was it was such a beautiful chamber performance of that. Of that
1: role, I always got the impression that uh, I spent the rehearsal period trying to get as much as King Learian as I could, and you spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to hone it down a bit. I've been looking up various bits of ephemera and throwing them away, but I've come across this postcard I got. I was in this play with Jeffrey Archer, and he writes about that at the Churchill Theatre in um, Bromley. Your portrayal of Sir James Barrington in *The accused The whole performance was wonderful, uh, and shame, But I believe the rest of the cast our audience was enthralled by your Sir James. You have given me so much to work on for my forthcoming appearance as Widow Twanky with the West Wickham, <laughs> with the West <laughs> <Wickham> Pantomime Society. <laughs> it's a perfect comic. It's a completely straight face. That's- Sweet! And not that I'm recalling your performance to Pantman. but you did so much with the occasional raising of an eyebrow and timing that most can only do with pages of text. Well, um, um, I'd like to have seen him raising his eyebrows as a widow twinkie. I might have <laughs> well to That
0: is a brilliant place for us to end this conversation. Edward, thank you so much. And I also hope that it's not long before I can come and sit in your garden in the sunshine and we can have uh, one of our lunches and a, a glass of something nice. But thank you very much and I'll speak to you soon, Edward. Thank you. Bless you. All the best. Take care. Lots of love.